this passage in Ezra chapter 1. It reminds me of something I saw the other day as I was driving the bus. I was driving by uh, Israel's house and Rick's house. And out front, Rick has this tractor. This uh, I'm going to start to give some, some numbers and try not to roll your eyes too much because I really am just Googling this stuff. I don't know it. But I believe that that's a Steiger Quad Track 450. Is that what that is? Okay. From what I could read, that thing max power can give 455 horsepower. Now, what is horsepower? I had to look for it. Mathematically speaking, horsepower is the force needed to move, listen to this, 550 pounds, one foot in a second. Now, 450 of those horsepower means that the case quad track can move 247,000 pounds, one foot in a second. That's almost 124 tons a foot in one second. That's a lot of power. That's almost 15 million pounds a foot as you're working through this. This thing is huge. And if you've ever sat in the cab of one of these quad track 450s, when Tom lowers that disc thingy into the ground and starts to move, that thing hardly ever even hesitates. I remember sitting there and watching as he did whatever he was doing with the thing that he was doing it with in the field and whatever was happening, I watched it drop down and insert itself into the, the, the soil and then he does whatever he does to get it to go forward and it moved and there was no hesitation. That's power. That's a powerful tractor. It's really interesting to think about the power involved there because it's huge. I think of the trains that, that drive by. These trains... Exercise regularly over 6,000 horsepower per locomotive. 6,000 horsepower. A cruise ship, when it's cruising across the ocean, 85,000 horsepower. A Boeing 747, approximately 95,000 horsepower to take off and lift a 747 and keep it into the air. Amy and I are listening to uh, some of the history of the Exxon Valdez, these big super oil tankers that carry 11 million gallons of oil. These take hundreds and hundreds of thousands of horsepower to move them across the ocean. That's a lot of power in that machine. That's a lot of energy involved there. This morning, as we look at this passage, we need to think of something that is even more powerful than those machines. Because left to themselves, Rick's tractor is going to sit right there next to the Quonset hut for the rest of eternity until it finally breaks down and disintegrates. That engine that has so much power 
can do nothing on its own. The true power behind that machine is Tom. Tom is that powerful. When Tom is driving that 450 horsepower uh, piece of equipment, he has 450 horsepower of power. He's the one that has that power. He's the one that is exercising it. He is the one that is manipulating it and controlling it. Even more interesting than that, when you drive by a field, I was out west and I saw uh, six combines combining some kind of plant. And they had trucks that were driving. And there was one guy in each tractor. And there was one guy in his truck. And he was controlling all of those hundreds and hundreds of, of horsepower. It's not the machine that has the power. It's a powerful machine. But it's the hand that wields it. It's the hand that controls it that actually has the power. That's the kind of thing that we're seeing today in this passage. In this passage, we're seeing that it is God who is in the driver's seat. If you're taking notes, it is God who is in the driver's seat. In this passage, we see that it is God who is working to bring this about. How does he do that in this passage? What is the means by which God exercises his power? He stirs up. He works. He, he turns the ignition. He's the one that guides. He's the one that has the plan. He's the one that makes it happen. In this passage, as we read through it, we're going to see that there is one being who is in control. And it is God above. It says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. In this passage, we see that God stirred. The word stir here means to wake up. It means to rouse. It means to disturb or to agitate. In this passage, we're going to see three ways that God stirs up. The first one is in the, the, the second phrase, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This morning, we can see even in this passage that it is God who is giving the directions. It is God who is giving the directions. In the book of Jeremiah, God stirred him up. God called him. It says they set him apart from his womb. The entire ministry of Jeremiah is one of God's agitation. Jeremiah came to proclaim the word of the, God, of the Lord, to make the people hear, and even then to stir them up. Part of the reason why God called Jeremiah was that he would make the people mad, that they would not like him and he would be agitated. And we see that in the beginning of Ezra as it ties this together. A hundred years earlier, God stirred up Jeremiah so that a hundred years later, God could use that agitation. He could use that disturbance to demonstrate that he's in control. He is in control. It's a precious thing for you and I. It's a precious thing for you and I to see that God was at work in his people before they were even in bondage. 
It's a precious thing to see that God was in the driver's seat controlling this as it happened, bringing about His will for the salvation of His people. That's how God works. As He stirred up Jeremiah to proclaim it, of which Ezra now records in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is the context of God's driving. It's God at work. It's God working. But then we go to the next phrase in verse 1, and it see, it, we see that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, if you want to talk about a powerful engine, Cyrus was the king of Persia. He was the king of all of these kingdoms. He was the authority. I don't want to take the time this morning to talk about the expanse of his kingdom. I'll do that later. But he was the king of kings on the earth. He was the one that if he said it, it happened. If he wanted it, he got it. If he decreed it, it was obeyed. He was the top dog. And yet when we read verse 1, we read that he's not quite the top dog. He might be the, 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 the quad track 450, but he doesn't run on his own. It says that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God is filling up the tank. God is the one that is working. In this passage, we can see three things that God stirred up Cyrus to do. In verse 2, God stirred up Cyrus to make, a pro, pro, excuse me, to make a proclamation throughout the kingdom and also put it in writing. Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. He stirred him up to say, to speak. He stirred Cyrus up to make a proclamation and a decree for everyone to hear. God stirred up Cyrus so that God's will would be heard and known. He also stirred up Cyrus to send his people back. That's what he's doing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go. Let him go. God stirred up this king who was sovereign over these nations and he said, go. He sent him out. This was the protocol for most of the Persian kings. They weren't like the, the Babylonians who collected people and brought them to them. The Persians figured that it's easier to rule the people by sending them back and having them set up their own uh, kingdoms or their own governments and they would support them. And this is what God is doing through Cyrus. God is stirring up Cyrus to return God's people to his land. That's a powerful truth. But not only is Cyrus saying something, not only is he sending them, but in verses 4 and then 7 and following, he's also supplying them. God stirred up Cyrus to supply his people in a foreign country for a great adventure. Verse 4, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. God stirred up Cyrus to supply his people. God did that. 
Cyrus, verse 7, the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who had counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them. And so God stirred up this great king to give back to the people the things that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple. God did that through Cyrus. He stirred up his heart. It's really important to see that this is what God stirred up Cyrus to provide. These are the instruments of his worship. This is the continuity of, of, of the story of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That God had had the people make these vessels for his worship to communicate the shadow of the gospel. And here we can see this gospel message that God is still stirring up the kingdoms. He's agitating Cyrus. He's working inside Cyrus's heart to get him to do his will. It's a powerful truth. The last thing this morning that he stirs up is he stirs up the people. God is preparing the fields. God is doing the work. God is at work in these people. Look at what it says in verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Not only did God stir up Jeremiah 100 years ago, not only was God working to stir up Cyrus, the one who was in charge of everything, but God also worked within these people. He worked within these people in three ways. He wanted them to rise, to get up. Think about what this would look like if God was stirring us up to move somewhere. What would he have to do to you and I to make that happen? He stirred them up to begin to think differently about their homes, about their jobs and their purpose in life. Amy and I experienced this when we moved to North Dakota. I want to be honest with you. North Dakota wasn't my first destination. If I had a dream location, North Dakota didn't show up on my list. That's not how I was thinking. But North Dakota did show up on my list. And so I began to think of the things that would have to change in order for me to want to go to North Dakota. I began to do research and so on to find out what was about North Dakota and so on. And things had to change in my thinking to cause me to come this direction. That's what it's talking about here. This is what God is doing. God is working in the hearts of the people to want to leave, to want to, to depart, to rise up. He worked in them to rise up and leave where they wanted to go where He was leading them. He changed their hearts. Look at the names of the ones who were stirred up. Judah, Benjamin, the Levites. What is God doing it doesn't say that he stirred up the hearts of all 12 tribes. It says that he stirred up the hearts of those who were from Judah and Benjamin and the Levites. And this isn't going to be my message today. But it's crucial for the gospel to continue to have Judah and the Levites back in Jerusalem because the king is going to come from this tribe of Judah. And he's going to come from Bethlehem. He has to be back there. This is how the story will proceed. And so here God is working in these people. Remember, he worked in Jeremiah 
a hundred years earlier to bring this about in Ezra chapter 1. And now he's stirring up the people in chapter 1 so that he can bring about the Christmas story. He's doing this work of stirring up the people that they would rise up. Not only is he working to get them to rise up, but he's also working in them to return. He's working in them to, to step out and to go back to Jerusalem. God's promises of the Messiah, they find their foundation in Jerusalem. It has to be this way. God's promises for his people are centered in his promised land. And as long as, as his people are not there, the promises can't be accomplished. God's promises are here. And so he stirs up the people. They have to return. And now God is working in their heart to want to do so. And now it's to rebuild. That's what he says. It says, um, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse four or verse three says to rebuild this house. He stirred up their hearts that they would go back and they would rebuild. This is sobering. It was the stirring of the sinful hearts of the kings of Israel. It was the, the evil inclinations of the people of Israel. It was the darkness of their sin that caused them to be in Babylon to begin with. It caused the city to be destroyed. It caused the land to be desolate. But now God is working in them to rebuild what He has torn down. This is a great picture these people had built lives for themselves in Babylon. They were safe and secure. But now they were being stirred to do something different. God was at work. God was at work. It's interesting to me that God worked through His Word. He worked through his, the Word of Jeremiah. This is what Jeremiah said would happen. He also worked through His Word through the mouth of Cyrus. This is what will happen. God's Word at work stirring up people. This morning, I'd like us to consider a couple things as we close. I don't want this to be something about us striving to stir up our own hearts. That's not going to be my application. Hey, stir up your own heart. That's not what we read here. What we do read here is that God stirred up the hearts. God did this. God worked within His people to stir them up. His Spirit stirred Jeremiah to write. His Spirit uh, uh, stirred Cyrus to read Isaiah and to respond. It stirred up the people to, to, to come and, and rise and, and want to re return. His Word working in us and through us stirs us up. That's what, that's what Hebrews chapter 4 means. When it's talking about what Joshua had done and, and what it looked like for God to be at work and how the people needed to come to rest, but because of their lack of faith, they didn't find the rest. And God says this, but the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God works through his word to stir us up, to divide us, to agitate us, to break us down. That's what the Word does. 
That's how He stirs us. Oh, my prayer is that He would stir us up through His Word. That we would read it and we would be shocked. That we would want to rise up to what He wanted us to do. That we would want to return to where He is. That we would want to rebuild what He has given us. That God would work in us. That He would stir us up this way. As we read the rest of the book of Ezra, we're going to also see that it is His people that stir us up. His people stir us up. Ezra is going to be somebody who stirs up. There's going to be other people that stir up the people. Church, He stirs us up. He stirs us up as each one of us pray, as each of us study, as each of us apply the teaching of His Word in our lives. He stirs us up. On Wednesday nights, I I ask a couple of questions at the beginning. What have you been reading in the Bible that's been encouraging to you? And I have been so stirred up over the last six to eight months as I've heard people that are actively reading the Bible and reading through it and studying it. And they say, you know what? I was reading in this passage and it really it really did challenge me. And then I'm challenged. And then somebody else will say, and I'm challenged by this and I'm challenged. I'm agitated. I'm disturbed. I'm stirred up. God uses his people. So much of the New Testament has recorded for just this thing to disturb people in their sins, to disturb people in their complacency, to encourage people in their distress, to encourage them in their anxiety, to build people up in their thinking. So much of the New Testament has been written to stir us up. What an encouraging thing. His will ought to be the foundation. For this, this is what stirs us up. As I read through this and we see that God is the one who wants this. God is the one who is, who is controlling this. God is the one who is, who is driving the, the, um, the case quad track 450 of Cyrus. God is the one driving it. It's His will that is being accomplished by the power. This is kind of what James is talking about when he says... Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And then listen to what he says in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. One of the things that I think of as as I move through this is that it really is God's will that matters. Cyrus had his plans. The people had their plans. But God had his plan. And it was God's will that was finally accomplished. And you and I need to make that the foundation for our thinking. We must be thinking about God's control. We ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. It ought to be the priority because he is the one at work. I think of the corona. And I think of the reality of God's will at work in people and in nature. The Bible has this. God is not only in the driver's seat of your heart and my heart. He's not only in the driver's seat of the will of man. But he's also in the driver's seat of nature. God controls nature. Things happen because of God. I think of the blind man in John when the people asked Jesus Christ, who sinned, this man or this, his parents? And Jesus says it wasn't this man or his parents. This happened so that God would be glorified. God did this for his own glory. 
Why would God let coronavirus happen? Why did God bring this about? It's not for, uh, it's not for politics. It's not for economics. It's not for education. He didn't bring it about for those reasons. He brought it about for His own glory. That His people would stand firm and rest in that. Not live in fear. And that we would be fearless as we proclaim to the people that we would be faithful. We are not worried that God is up there hoping He doesn't get coronavirus. God brought this about. God would be glorified. This morning, let's take comfort in this. Let's take comfort in the reality of this truth. If the Lord wills, we know our God is great. We know our God is good. We know our God is faithful. We know that He is right and righteous. And if this is the being that is willing things, then we know He will do what is right. We know that regardless of how it affects us and how we feel about it, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so as we see what happened in Ezra and we see His powerful driving force, you and I wouldn't try to stand up and help Him. We wouldn't try to get in His way and change Him, but that we would rest in the reality that it is a good God who is keeping His promises and making sure that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. So today, so today, let's rest in Jesus Christ. Let's rest in the hope that He provides. God is still in control. Jesus Christ is alive. He is all-powerful. He proved it by His resurrection. I think about it this way. When I was just a little kid, my grandfather had a tractor. I couldn't tell you anything about it. It was big and it did big things. And it moved big things and it planted big things and it, and it did things to big fields. But you know what I remember? I remember the smell of my grandfather in the cab. I can remember the warmth of his arm on my shoulder as I sat there on his knee. Or his old tractor, I bumped around on the, the wheel thing right here, but he held me. I don't remember anything about the horsepower. I don't even remember the yield of the crops. I don't remember any of that. But I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember the man who ran that tractor. I remember the man who loved me. And I couldn't care any less about what he did that way. All I knew was that he was my grandpa. And I spent hour upon hour upon hour worshiping Him in that tractor. This morning, that's our perspective. God is powerful. God is sovereign. God is in the driver's seat. But it's God that is our focus. This morning, we're going to celebrate this here. We're going to celebrate God. We're going to celebrate what God has done. We're going to celebrate the goodness and the glory. And you and I need to be thinking this way. Not what we want, not what we prefer, not what we think, but if God wills, we will do such and such. Let's pay more attention to the one who's in control 
than what He's doing. Let's rest in His promises and live because of what He's done. Lord, work in our soul today as we partake of Your your meal. Lord Jesus, help us to love You for Your glory. Amen. Thank you.